Uh, as we read Philippians 2, that's one of the questions bubbling below the surface. What do you do when your own interests, your own position, your own glory is threatened? What do you do when your own interests, your positions, or your own glory is threatened? Um, picture this. It's 1994, and it's the NBA playoffs, the championships, right? Um, the Chicago Bulls are playing the New York Knicks. It's a tied game. There's two seconds left, and there's a timeout called. The Chicago Bulls huddle around. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do in the last two seconds to win this game. Scotty Pippen, the captain of the team and the lead scorer for the team, says, right, pass the ball to me. I'll put the ring shot in. The coach says no. Scotty Pippen says, sorry, <laughs> I'm the captain of the team. I'm the lead scorer. Pass the ball to me. I'll take the winning shot. Phil Jackson, the coach, says, no, we're going to give it to a guy called Tony. Then Scotty says, unless I take the shot, I won't go on the court. And in front of 20,000 people there in the stadium and a bunch of people watching on national TV, he then sits down on the bench. Uh, if you're an NBA fan, if you've seen The Last Dance on Netflix, this moment has gone down in history. So, as it unfolds, the team goes on the court without him. Tony gets the ball, scores the winning shot, he wins the game. It's the greatest dummy spit of all time, right? If I don't get to go take that winning shot, I won't go on the, on the court. When he was in this position, uh, when his glory, when his power was threatened, he served his own interests. Fifteen years later, in an interview last year, um, he said, I regret what I did. And if I had my time again, I wouldn't change anything. Wow. A guy who was serving his own interests. Tonight we're talking about humility. And just to be clear, that's an example of someone who isn't humble, who's someone who puts his own interests before other people. Um, humility is at the centre of what we're looking at tonight. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's like it'll come up. Humility, true humility, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Sure, humility might be seen in action, uh, but it starts on the inside. Humility is a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a posture of the heart. So when someone at church says, today, I'm not going to sit with my friends, I'm going to sit with the new person because they're alone, that's humility. Teenagers, when your parents put their life at danger and take you driving for your L's, that's humility, right? When someone, without anyone else knowing, cleans the toilets after church on a Sunday, after four services, without telling anyone, that's humility. It's an attitude of our heart that changes how we think and how we act, not thinking of ourselves as less, but thinking, sorry, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. As I've reflected this week, I found it really hard to think and speak about humility. I think we, as people, find it hard to speak about humility, because if you're anything like me, you're not very good at it. This week I've been flicking through a book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. 
And he puts it this way. He says, I'm a proud man who seeks humility under the grace of God. As I've reflected on Philippians 2, I thought, yeah, that's me. And as we look at Philippians 2 and think about humility, the real challenge that we face is actually there's something deeper going on in our hearts when we think about humility. Have a look at verse 3 with me. It's in our Bible reading. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We struggle to talk about humility. We struggle to value people above ourselves because of our, verse 3, selfish ambitions, our vain conceit, or simply put, our pride. And since we are complex beings, there's a whole iceberg of insecurities underneath the surface of that. There's a whole bunch of things kind of driving that self-ambition and that pride. Uh, It might be a desperate longing for people to notice us, to appreciate us, to love us. It might be the fear of being ignored or dismissed or treated like we don't matter. And there's also something deeper than that. Even further down, below our fears and those longings, and that's our sin. You see, God created our heart like a compass. Uh, Compasses are designed to point north, and a broken compass, well, it points any other direction apart from north. And so God created our hearts that they would point us towards him so that we would know God, that we would honour God, that we would love God, and for our love for God, outflowing would be a love for other people. But sin has broken the compass of our heart. So rather than loving and knowing and serving God, we love ourselves we serve and honor ourselves and so from that outflowing of um, our sinful heart comes pride and selfish ambition and it all comes to a head when you take sinners saved by grace like us and you put them together in a church we go to a church looking for our needs to be met rather than how can we serve other people Uh, we want to serve, yes, but we will only serve on our own terms. Uh, When other people get on ahead of us or benefit from other things, we say, well, what about me? Why did I miss out? And so instead of being a group that encourage one another to stand firm, to work side by side as we hold on to the gospel and defend the gospel and declare the gospel to Orange, sometimes, sadly, churches can be a place of great discouragement Instead of building people up, our pride causes us to knock them down. Now, at some level, you may expect it because we're a gathering of sinners saved by grace. But if you expect it, friends, you should never accept it. You should never be satisfied with it. We need help. So what is hope? What is the hope for people like us, sinners saved by grace, um, to work in the best interests of other people? What hope do we have for humility? Well, Philippians 2 will say, you already have that hope in Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 5 with me. Paul even says, your attitude should be the same of Jesus Christ. Why is humility so important? Why is it essential to God's people? Because humility is the pattern of the life of Jesus and therefore it should be reflected in us as his people. Uh, 
how about I pray and we're going to look at this tonight. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us as we continue to think about humility, to think about pride. We thank you for your son Jesus and we do pray that you would soften our hearts so we may continue to listen to you speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles there, I want you to have a look at chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, we're kind of dive-bombing into the letter to the Philippians. And Paul, when he's in prison in Rome in about 62 AD, he writes to this church that he originally planted. You can read about it in Acts 16. And if you want, wanted a topic verse for the whole letter, chapter 1, verse 27 will kind of help us with that. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This is Paul's ethic for the Christian life. What are we to do as people who know and love Jesus Christ? To live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And in verse 27, he says that means two things. One, that means standing firm in the face of opposition. So whatever the world throws at us, that we would stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. And second, that we would do it together. We would stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And so Philippians 2 is Paul's encouragement for how we can live that out. And he points to the example of Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 6. Who, this is speaking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Paul begins with Jesus, but he doesn't start at the birth in the manger. He doesn't start at creation. He starts in eternity past. That Jesus, the divine son of God, is equal with God in power and authority and glory. But he made himself nothing. If you've got another translation... Uh, You'll notice verse 7 says that he emptied himself by becoming a man. So God, the God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, becomes a man in the incarnation of God, in Jesus Christ. What's the incarnation? Uh, Think about it this way. There's two types of chili, yeah? There's regular chili and chili con carne, yeah? Carne with flesh. And that's where we get the word incarnation from. God, but the incarnation God in the flesh, it's the best kind of chili. Um, but when God became to earth as a man, the big question is, what did he lose? What did he give up? What did he not consider something to be grasped? Uh, that's a question I have for you. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and ask them, when God became a man in Jesus, what did he lose? I'll give you a minute. Go. Okay, that's your 60 seconds. I wonder what you said. Maybe you said it was his power. Maybe you said it was his authority. Maybe you said it was his glory. 
I think the clue is in verse 7. That is, he made himself nothing. So what did he lose? By taking the very nature of a servant. The original word there for taking is taking on. That doesn't mean subtraction, but rather addition. So God didn't subtract the divine nature to become a man. He added to himself human nature. And he did it by taking on the nature of a servant. So get this, all through Jesus' life, Jesus has the power, the authority, and the glory of God, but he doesn't use it to his own advantage. He veils his power. He holds back his authority. He hides his glory. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is arrested and the the disciples, they, they pull out their swords and want to fight, and Jesus says, stop. At this moment, I could have a whole legion of angels come and rescue me. But what happening, what's happening now is to fulfill Scripture. Jesus has the power, authority, and glory to call down angels to rescue him, but he holds off. He doesn't use it to his own advantage. And so it's veiled. And he does that so he may serve. And that's Paul's point, that true humility is setting aside our own glory to serve other people. He says something else. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, as the perfect son of God, lived a perfect obedient life without sin. You could say of Jesus that he loved his neighbor as himself, and he loved God, the Father, with all of his heart, soul, and mind. He was perfectly obedient and obedient even to the point of death. And the most shameful death possible, the death of a criminal on a Roman cross. You see, the purpose of his death was ultimately in obedience to the Father's will. Uh, We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane again, don't we? When Jesus is praying out to the Father, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is perfectly obedient as he goes to the cross for the Father's plan, that is, God's eternal plan for salvation, dying for our sin in our place to wash us clean, to reconcile us to God. And so the purpose was obedience to the Father. And Paul says the pattern was for us. You see, Jesus never went begrudgingly to the cross. He went willingly to the cross. You see it in verses 5 to 8. Um, to get a bit nerdy, the subject of all the verbs here is Jesus. So it's Jesus who humbles himself through obedience. It's Jesus who humbles himself to death. And it's Jesus who humbles himself to death on the cross. Jesus' death was not forced. It was not coerced. It was self-sacrifice. And this is Paul's other point, that true humility means service. A true humility means self-sacrifice. So what did God think about Jesus' self-sacrifice? Well, have a look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. If you hum the tune, that's okay. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul finishes this hymn of praise by telling us what happened after the cross, that God the Father, by the power of his Spirit, exalted the Son. 
that Jesus was resurrected, ascended, and glorified to the right hand of the Father, where he sits and rules today. He was given the name above every name, that is, Lord, God's King, the one who rules over all creation. And when Jesus returns, just as he has promised, his power, his authority, and glory will be fully revealed. That which was veiled in his earthly life will be fully revealed to all, so that at the sight, everyone who has ever followed Jesus will confess, Jesus is Lord. And everyone who has ever rejected Jesus will see his glory and say, Jesus is Lord. Everyone who calls him Saviour, everyone who mocks him, will see that Jesus is Lord. Paul is not speaking about universalism here, just to be clear. But he's saying that everyone at the return of Jesus will bow their knee, whether today in repentance and faith through salvation or when he returns in judgment. You see, the ancient world, the Roman Empire into which Jesus was born, it didn't really regard humility as a virtue at all. Uh, they praised honour, they praised power, they praised status. That is where you found greatness. It's where you find greatness today, isn't it? And they held humility and self-lowering as shameful and disgraceful, something that only a slave would do. But God thinks differently. You see, Paul connects the dots really helpfully for us. He shows us that the humility of Jesus is actually greatness in God's kingdom. It reminds me of a guy called Joe Lewis. Picture this. It's Chicago in the 1930s. Uh, oh, can we have a back slide? Back, thank you. It's 1930s. There's a late night bus driving through Detroit and a lone African-American sits at the, at the back of a bus. Three young men hop on the bus and they try to pick a fight with this man. So they start to mock him. And he sits there and does nothing. They hurl insults at him. He still sits there and does nothing. They try to G him up, try to get a response. He says absolutely nothing. Then he gets up, hands them a business card, and gets off the bus. As the bus is driving away, these three guys gather around to read what the, um, what the business card said. And it says, Joe Lewis, boxer. So now you can go to the next slide. <laughs> That is, Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world, for 12 years, 72 fights, 69 wins, 57 KOs. He's the greatest boxer who has ever lived, the second being Muhammad Ali. I love this story because, let's face it, Joe was not in danger that night on the bus. He is a man of immense power and skill and glory. Capable of defeating, sorry, capable of defending his honor with a single knockout punch. But he chose to give up his status. He chose to give up his power and his glory for the sake of others. And in this case, it was some very fortunate young guys and their noses. Um, but this is humility the giving up of our power, the giving up of our rights, the giving up of our glory for the interests of other people. And this is what we see in the life of Jesus. That Jesus gives up, uh, so Jesus 
does not use his power or authority or glory to his own advantage, so he may serve us, so he may self-sacrifice for us, putting our interests above his own. And Paul says that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should have this mindset, this attitude, this heart posture as we seek to love one another and do life with one another. So it means that the cross of Jesus Christ gives us hope. It gives uh, prideful people like you and me hope for two reasons. First, the cross gives us hope because it deals with our sin of pride. God, in his great love, sent Jesus to die in our place and it was in the shedding of his blood that he paid for our sin. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, declaring to the world that he had conquered sin and death once and for all, so that anyone who has faith in Jesus and asks him to forgive them of their sin, Jesus can freely forgive them of their sin because the punishment has already been taken. And when Jesus went to the cross, it was for sin and the sin of pride as well. And so for us who struggle with pride tonight, or for us who someone has talked to us about pride, we have hope and we have a saviour. We have someone who can forgive us of our sin. So friends, if this is something that you struggle with or something that you've been challenged about tonight, go to the foot of the cross because there is grace and forgiveness and love for people like me who are proud. Second thing, Jesus gives us hope, hope for the proud, because he gives us a pattern which we should follow. Uh, you see, why would Jesus do all this? I mean, why would Jesus, I mean, okay, you're not God, but for a second, think about it, right? If you had the glory, power, and authority of God, and someone asked you to not use that to your advantage, but to become a servant and a human, with all the weak and frail things that humans have, would you do it? I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I probably wouldn't do it. I would like that power and glory and authority far too much. But why does Jesus do it? Because he shows us the character of God. In the incarnation of Jesus and the death of Jesus, we see that the character of God is service, is self-sacrifice. It's putting other interests other people's interests first. That's because the God of the Bible is not a God who grasps for power. No. He's a God who gives his son so that we may be one for him. The God of the Bible is not a tyrant that demands to rule. That is because there is no one that would threaten God's rule. God is a gracious God who adopts us as his children. And so this character that we see displayed in Jesus in his service and self-sacrifice. Paul says that should be our mindset, our attitude, the pattern that we follow so that we can put other people's interests first. So verse 5, in our relationships, our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. Um, so when you wake up in the morning and think, how can I bless others? Will we look to the pattern of Jesus? and we put other person's interests first. Adrenalite leaders and youth group leaders, when you're driving to youth group and Adrenalite on a Thursday or a Friday night, and you're thinking, how can I bless the team tonight? 
look to the pattern of Jesus, his death on the cross, and follow his example of other people first. And in our relationships, when there are people who we have wronged and hurt, we look to the pattern of Jesus. We put other people's interests first. We say, I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. This is the pattern of Jesus. So it gives us hope. But also, this is something that God wants to do in us. God wants to grow us so that this would happen in our hearts and in our lives. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In verse 12, Paul is not saying that you need to discover your salvation. He's not saying you need to figure it out and you don't have to work it to earn your salvation. Paul is here saying that you need to live out your salvation. And to live out your salvation in chapter 2 is to have the same attitude and mindset of Jesus. It's to put other interests, other people's interests before our own. And we're told, verse 13, for God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is something that God desires to do in us and transforms us so that we would desire it as well. So growing in humility is an act of God that he does in us. Now, we may never be as humble as the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never achieve what he did on the cross. But by his spirit, we have the mind of Christ. And so that we can work and seek and strive to put other people's interests first. How might we, what can we do to grow in this? Well, we remember the cross. The cross is the climax and the pattern of Jesus' humility. It's also the place that we learn. The cross is like a school teacher. Because the cross undermines our self-righteousness. It shows us that our glory is actually a vain and false glory. It shows us that we have nothing to be proud about. The cross reminds us that we cannot stand in judgment over other people. Because it is Jesus who has dealt with the judgment of God for our behalf. And it's in Jesus that we have tenderness and compassion to show other people. And so the cross is like a school teacher because it teaches us what people need. It teaches us what their interests are so that we can put their interests first. And so to the new mother who hasn't slept all week, the cross of Christ teaches them that your service and your sleepless nights are worth it. To the guy who's been out of work for three years, the cross says that you are valued in God's eyes and he has a plan and a purpose for you. For the teenager who's living under the weight of school, the pressure of social media and how to be a Christian around their friends, the cross teaches us that God is with you in that and helps you stand firm. To the elderly in the last days of their life, the cross says there's an assurance of everlasting life and life to the full beyond the grave. You see, having the same, so how do we strive together for the sake of the gospel? How do we live out, how do we live lives 
worthy of the gospel? Chapter 1, verse 27. By having the same mindset of Jesus. Through service and sacrifice, we put other people's needs before our own. And we pray that God would transform our hearts so that we would desire to do this. What does this look like in practice? Two questions to ask. First, how can I serve the needs of our church? So often when it comes to serving in church, we start with our own interests, our gifts, our talents, and our abilities. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. After all, there's a very good reason why I don't serve in certain ways at church. You should be thankful that I don't lead the singing. No, seriously, you should, because that's not my gift, ability, or talent. And as we strive together and we serve one another, there will be needs in our church that are greater. And so that one of the ways that we can put other people's needs above ourselves, one of the ways that we can put this mindset into action, is to ask, what is the greatest need at church and how can I serve? The other way is to ask, how can I serve the person sitting next to me? So often we're attracted to like-minded people at church. It's natural to gravitate towards people who have the same interests or in the same season of life. But tonight, maybe you can ask yourself, how can I serve a person who isn't like me? I can guarantee you that there's someone on the other side of the, the, the room tonight who has a great need and that gives you an opportunity to sacrifice your time and to serve them. Our, our, the church tonight is filled with opportunities to serve one another and love one another. And so maybe you need to ask, how can I serve one of these people who's sitting around me? This is not easy to do, but the good news is that God works in our hearts so that uh, we would desire to do that. So how about I pray that God would do exactly that to transform us to be more like Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his service and his self-sacrifice. And so, Lord, we do pray that by your spirit you would transform our hearts so that we would seek to live humble lives Give us opportunities this week to serve people for self-sacrifice, to put others' interests above our own. And we pray that you would help us to do it, not for our own glory, but rather for your glory, as together we strive for the gospel.